Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the eldest son. Afterwards, as you know, when he wanted to inherit his blessing, he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom and storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you, that you do not refuse him who speaks, if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who, t- who warns us from heaven? At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our, for our God is a consuming fire. Extraordinary words. Uh, the wonderful news is that God, the Holy Spirit, who wrote those words, is with us and uh, able to act in us to open our eyes, open our hearts, so that we might understand some of this and be transformed by it. So let's ask for His help as we look at it together now. Father, thank you so much that you are with us by your Spirit, and uh, please help us. These are extraordinary words. Help us to understand them. Help us to realize how much we need to hear your voice, to listen to it, to sit at your feet, uh, to have our lives molded and shaped by what you have to say. In Jesus' name, amen. MC Hammer, Lindsay Lohan, Mike Tyson, Burt Reynolds, Billy Joel, Pamela Anderson... Willie Nelson, Tony Braxton, Stephen Baldwin, Rush Hour's Chris Tucker. What have they got in common? Um, They are just a few of the countless celebrities who at some point have been declared bankrupt. 
they've had millions and millions of dollars at one stage in their life and could have easily lived in luxury without needing another penny. And then one day woke up to realize that they had squandered the lot. They were in trouble. Somehow they'd thrown it all away. Now, I don't want to judge. Lots of different reasons for financial problems. Uh, I suspect, though, that afterwards, many of them were kicking themselves, full of regret, saying to themselves, I've been such an idiot. How could I squander all of that money? I had everything. And now I've got nothing. And it's all down to my own stupid choices. And this passage in Hebrews is there to stop us from doing that. Not with money, but with our Christian faith. If you're a Christian, your relationship with God is indescribably priceless. It is by far the most valuable, most wonderful thing that you could ever have. The most valuable thing that any one of us, anyone in the world could have. But there is a terrible danger that some of us could throw it all away. Trade our priceless relationship with God for something utterly pathetic. All because we fail to see or somehow we've forgotten how privileged we truly are to know Jesus. Do you think you could ever do that? Let's dive into the beginning of the passage, verses 14 to 17, because this sets out the problem. Uh, I've called this a little bit this. uh, Don't trade your priceless relationship with God for something pathetic. Uh, Just in terms of structure of the the whole passage we're looking at, these verses at the beginning set out the problem. Then the middle chunk, uh, 18 to 24, the writer lays out a contrast to help us see how incomparably priceless our relationship with God is. He essentially says... This is how terrible it is if you don't know Jesus. And this is how wonderful it is if you do. And then the last verses in the chapter urge us on that basis. So don't turn away. Uh, Be thankful for that priceless relationship that you have. So that's the the outline of the the passage we're looking at. Looking at the problem. Then the contrast between knowing Jesus and not knowing him. And then urging us to stay with Jesus on that basis. So let's look at the problem. Verses 14 to 17. Don't trade your relationship with God for something pathetic. Verse 14. Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. So the issue is there in verse 14. Failing to see the Lord at the end of your life, doing something, making some choice or or decisions in life, which mean that you won't spend eternity with him. Or as verse 15 puts it, missing the grace of God. Now the sense of missing there is not just accidentally missing out on something. Uh, Oh look, a shooting star, did you see it? No, I missed it. Not, Not that kind of, I miss it by accident. The sense here is of aiming, journeying deliberately towards a target... And then missing that target by swerving off at the last minute, being distracted. Like somebody heading off to Brazil, uh, not with tickets for the game that uh, uh, Phil's brother watched uh, last night, but for the the final, the World Cup final. And somehow, by a miracle, England has has made it through. Uh, So it's about the most exciting match that you could dream of. And uh, on the day, having flown halfway across the world to get there, paid for the, the flights and the hotels, clutching that priceless ticket, you, you join the crowds heading for the stadium. You almost get to the gate. And then one of the stewards 
stops you in the, the queue of people and says, uh, he points to the, the little bottle of Evian mineral water in your hand and says, I'm sorry, so you, you can't bring that inside. And it's just a tiny little bottle that you, you picked up on the way for a quid. But instead of throwing it in the bin or, or just drinking it on the spot and, and, and chucking it away, you get mad. I've paid for this. It's mine. I, I'm not going to give it. I'm not going to throw it away. I want it with me. You can't make me throw it in the bin. Okay, so but you, you can't come in. And so you inexplicably find yourself walking away in a bizarre temper, just vaguely aware that you've traded something priceless for something utterly pathetic. That's the sense of missing here. Why would you do that? Why would anybody do such a stupid thing? Nobody would do that, right? And yet that is exactly what the author here is concerned about. All the way through this letter, the author to the Hebrews is urging Christians to stick with Jesus. We've mentioned before that there's a sort of alternating patter to the, uh, to the letter. Passages that say, Jesus is wonderful, stick with him. Followed by warnings that say, don't walk away from him, that would be terrible. That's what the, the whole letter is doing. Uh, but here's the thing about today's passage. In some other places in the letter, the reasons for walking away from Jesus sound on the face of it quite big. Uh, in chapter 10, we read how after they became Christians, these Hebrews faced intense suffering, public exposure to insult, persecution, some went to prison, some had their, their property confiscated. The writer is saying, staying with Jesus is truly worth it, even in those circumstances. But here in chapter 12... The reasons are not big. They're pathetic. The issue is holiness, verse 14. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And various aspects of holy living are mentioned. Living at peace with people in verse 14. Having a bitter root in verse 15. Giving into sexual immorality in verse 16. Now look, it's not that we earn our relationship with God through holy living. Hebrews is really clear on this point, actually. Chapter 10, verse 10, shows us that holiness is given to us as a status. 10.10 says, we've been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus once and for all. And holy living is what follows being given that status. We've got to be prepared to live out the holy status that we've already been given by Jesus. So look at these aspects of holy living. These are things that the author says we're in danger of trading our relationship with God for. And in that sense, these are tiny, pathetic things. Verse 14, living at at peace with people. You might have come across people who walk away from church, even walk away from their relationship with God, because somebody, maybe just one person or a couple of people at church, wind them up. And they make that decision in their head that says, I, I, you know what, I'd rather give up on God than have to live at peace with those people and have to put up with them every week. Isn't that a pathetic thing to trade your relationship with God for? Or the, the bitter root of verse 15, maybe referring to hidden resentments that, that seethe and spread between people, unspoken grudges that eat away at your heart until you'd rather, again, walk away from God than forgive and love people. Or sexual immorality in verse 16. I'd rather be able to sleep with whoever I like or watch whatever porn I like than keep my eternal relationship with God. Really? 
side by side. That is a pathetic choice. C.S. Lewis wrote about how pathetic sin so often is. He wrote, our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday by the sea. We are far too easily pleased, says Lewis. If we want to trade God in for resentment or grudges or sex, that is pathetic. Verse 16 shows us just how embarrassing it is by telling us, if we do that, we're like Esau. Now that is embarrassing. Esau has gone down in history in the Bible as something of an idiot. Uh, The ultimate example of trading something priceless for something pathetic. As verse 16 says, he sold his inheritance rights for a single meal. All the privileges and considerable wealth of his well-off family were, were coming his way. He was the firstborn son. All he had to do was wait. But maybe you know the story from Genesis 28. Esau one day comes back from a long day hunting in the forest. He's feeling pretty hungry. And he sees his brother Jacob cooking some red stew. Ah, oh, brilliant. Jacob, give me some of that uh, red stew. I'm absolutely famished. And, and Jacob looks at him and says, first, sell me your birthright. I, I don't know whether Jacob seriously expected Esau to do the deal. It sounds like a joke. Either Jacob was messing around or he knew his brother was an idiot. Because, I mean, what would you expect Esau to say at this point? Let me think, priceless inheritance or one meal? Cake or death? I don't know. What choice should I make? Shut up, little brother, and give me some food. But incredibly, none of that comes out of Esau's mouth or through his head. He says, in Genesis, word for word, Look, I'm about to die. In other words, I'm really, really hungry, and I can't think about anything apart from that right now. And he thinks, and he says, What, is a, what use is a birthright to me? And so he swears to Jacob, and the deal is done. What use is a birthright to me? Has there ever been a more stupid question? Uh, And yet if we allow little issues of holy living to, to ultimately take us away from God, then we're asking an even more stupid question. What use is a relationship with God to me? Right now I'd give that up. For a bit of stew, a bit of illicit sexual attraction, or a bit of satisfying grudge-bearing against somebody or against a church. I'll allow those little pathetic things to become so big in my head and allow my appreciation of my relationship with God to become so small that I'll willingly do a stupid deal like Esau. You have the relationship with God. I want my sin. Thanks very much. And if we do that then like Esau, we will bitterly regret that decision. Verse 17 says, Afterwards, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. Esau, you idiot, what did you think was going to happen? The deal was done. Look, for, for us, the fantastic news is that 
God is a God of second chances and third chances and fourth and fifth and will never turn away anyone who genuinely repents, no matter what they've done in the past. Esau didn't have that luxury. But if if you and I realize tonight that we've traded knowing God for something worthless, then come back to him. Throw away the pathetic worthless thing, the sin that you've been clinging to. Come back to God. He will take you. He will forgive you. And yet we've got to take the finality of this warning seriously. There, There will come a day when our rejection of God becomes irreversible, like Esau's was. And that day might be the, uh, the judgment day in the future when it's all over. Uh, it could realistically in our hearts be sooner than that, when we've so hardened ourselves in our decision against God that it's become permanent. You've done the deal in your heart. You, you've made that trade and you won't repent. Don't let that happen. Don't trade your priceless relationship with God for something pathetic. Okay, why? Why is knowing Jesus so priceless? And why would giving up, giving up on him being, be such a disaster? That's the point of the middle section. These uh, contrasts, verses 18 to 24, the two options are laid out for us. The contrast is between two utterly different experiences we could have of God. One without Jesus, and one with Jesus. It's symbolized by two mountains. The first one, although it's not named, is Mount Sinai, where God revealed himself in a a terrifying vision to the people of Israel in Exodus chapter 19. Mount Sinai shows us that approaching God without Jesus is terrifying. But the second mountain is Mount Zion, which we'll see in a second, is a heavenly place, the city of God, where people and angels live with him in incredible joy. Mount Zion shows us that approaching God through Jesus is priceless, wonderful beyond all that we could imagine. And the point is, Christians haven't come to Mount Sinai in verse 18. We have come to Mount Zion, verse 22. When you realize what you have, the priceless privileges and joys of Mount Zion, and when you see the the terror of the alternative, you would never go back. You wouldn't trade it in, not not for anything, uh, let alone the, the pathetic little temptations this chapter speaks of. No one in their right mind would ever, ever swap Mount Zion for Mount Sinai, no matter what enticements were thrown in. So let's quickly survey these mountains. First, Mount Sinai. This is verses 18 to 20, to 21, sorry. Uh, Sinai is a mountain in verse 18 that uh, can be touched, except it can't, because it's burning with fire in verse 18. The people of Israel have been looking forward to meeting with God there. He'd called them out of Egypt, rescued them from slavery, gathered them to Mount Sinai to, to worship him. And yet this is how he revealed himself to them. With, in verse 18, fire. With darkness, gloom and storm. With a a trumpet blast or such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. Which was, if even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. 
why would God reveal himself like that? On one level, these things show God's awesome power and authority, but more important than that, they show God to be unapproachable. Although he called the Israelites to know him, they couldn't actually approach him. If you go to Chernobyl today, uh, the place in Ukraine where there was a a nuclear power station explosion uh, back in 1986, of course, they won't let you near the remains. When the reactor blew up, it contaminated the area uh, with radioactive materials, some of which uh, apparently will remain deadly for another thousand years. And it's for your own safety that you can't approach, because if you did, it would kill you. If you see signs in Chernobyl which say, danger of death, keep out, you take them seriously. There are strict limits set up around that place, just as there were at Mount Sinai. For Israel at Mount Sinai, God was amongst them, but he was deadly to approach. And that wasn't an act. Uh, It wasn't God saying something about himself that that wasn't really true. You know, like the Wizard of Oz. He sets up a a big contraption around him that moves and breathes fire and smoke, so everybody's scared of him and thinks he's magical and and terrifying. And so they won't find out that behind it, he's just an ordinary little man with, uh, with no magical powers. God's not pretending here. This was real. The presence of God really was deadly for people. Those who ignored the restrictions and crossed the boundaries really did die. And the unfolding story of the Bible shows us why. God is holy, perfectly holy. And perfect holiness and imperfect sinful human beings just cannot mix. The two cannot go together. If you approach God as a human being, without your sins and your rebellion, your imperfection dealt with, then this is the only experience of God you can have the terrifying God of Mount Sinai that will kill you when you approach. There can be only one outcome, the blazing holiness of God, which incinerates anything imperfect that comes close. Verse 21, the sight was so terrifying that Moses, even Moses, who had the privilege of speaking to God personally and leading the people on God's behalf, even Moses said... I'm trembling with fear. So Mount Sinai represents coming to God without Jesus. It's deadly. It is something that we should be terrified of. And yet, without Jesus, that is the only option that we have to get to the end of our lives and meet our maker without our sins removed. Nothing could be worse. It's an experience that we should avoid at all costs. But the writer says to those who trust in Jesus, that is not where you've come. You haven't come to Mount Sinai. Your experience of God could not be more different to that. Look at where we have come in verse 22. You have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem. In earthly terms, uh, Mount Zion was the hill in Jerusalem where the temple was built, the place where people came to meet God, who was still within the temple, to some extent, off-limits and inaccessible and deadly for those who would try to go all the way in. But Christians come to, not that physical Mount Zion, but a, a new heavenly one, a completely new way of knowing God, with none of the fear of the old way. 
And these verses, they just pile up line after line after line of extraordinary privilege and joy and blessing. Let me just very quickly take us through them. Uh, And I'd love you to just have your eyes down there on verses 22 to 24 because these are amazing, wonderful things. And I want us to absorb them. Verse 22, Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, is the city of the living God. In other words, a, a perfect new community that God has built around himself. This is not a place that God has, has just visited to reveal himself like Mount Sinai. This is where God is, his dwelling place, his, the real place, not an earthly shadow. Next, verse 22, you have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. Could you get more of a contrast with Mount Sinai? The city of God, far from being a place of terror, is full of joy with angels gathered and celebrating in the presence of God. Next verse 23, you have come to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. If you're a Christian, you're part of the church of the firstborn. In other words, you have that firstborn right, that privilege that Esau as the firstborn threw away. You have the inheritance, the blessing, the right to be in the city of God. To, to be in his presence without fear, to receive all the joys and privileges of, of living there with him. And there's no doubt, it's all signed and sealed by God. It says your names are written in heaven. So I mean, imagine when you, when you get there, you, you maybe feel a, an uncertainty. Oh gosh, do I, you sh- should I really be here in heaven? And maybe somebody will open a book and show you your name written in it. And say, you know, that, that's your name, isn't it? Yeah, that's you. You're meant to be here. Welcome. And then the writer focuses in on what is perhaps most extraordinary of all. In verse 23, you have come to God, the judge of all men. You've approached God himself and come right into his presence, which was so impossible at Mount Sinai. Now, let me be clear on this. This is not a different God to Mount Sinai. The end of the passage is going to say, God is a consuming fire still. That's not changed. And as it says here, he's the judge of all men. He still is the one with power and authority to to pass sentence on our lives, to give life, to take it away. Don't make the mistake of thinking this is a contrast between two different gods. It's not that. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. The God of Sinai is the God of Zion. But uh, the experience of coming to him as a Christian is utterly different. We come freely, safely, without danger, without the fearful threat of judgment. The last couple of phrases explain how that can be. End of verse 23. You've come to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. This is talking about people who trusted Jesus, who've already died, and it shows how they and we can be in God's presence because they've been made perfect. They were sinners just like us, with no right to enter God's city or his presence. But now they're not sinners anymore. They're forgiven. They're they're changed by Christ until at last they've died and gone to heaven, having been made perfect. No longer sinners. No longer doing anything or saying or thinking anything impure. People made perfect can live safely in the presence of a holy God. 
Can you, can you imagine that for a second? A, a society of human beings made perfect without a single evil act, not a single evil word, not a single evil thought amongst the whole community. It's an incredible future gathered around God that awaits us. And then the final explanation of all this, how it's possible, in verse 24. You have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Bottom line, the one who makes all of this possible is Jesus. He is the one who has opened up this new kind of relationship with God, this new covenant. And it's uh, by coming to God through Jesus that we can experience Mount Zion and not Mount Sinai. He is the one who makes us perfect by his blood shed on the cross. Hebrews, earlier in the letter, has gone into enormous detail about how the blood of Jesus can bring us permanent forgiveness and cleansing and perfection so we can enter God's presence forever. Unlike the blood of Abel that it's contrasted with here, the blood of Abel cried out for vengeance against Cain who had killed him. The blood of Jesus cries out, forgive to those who would come to him. These are, in summary, the privileges, the the blessings of coming to God through Christ. And here's the point. Can you put a price on that? If you've come to Mount Zion and and have all these things, what could possibly be more valuable? Why would you want to go back to the terrors of Mount Sinai? Why would you trade these privileges of Mount Zion for anything, let alone the, the pathetic things that the writer warns us of in these chapters? Don't give this away. Don't sell it. Don't barter it or swap it or trade it, not for all the money in the world. Not for all the sex in the world. Not for all the relational satisfaction in the world. Not for anything. Can I say something to those who might not call themselves uh, Christians tonight? I'd, I'd love you to feel something of this. Do you see how knowing Jesus could be the most valuable, the most priceless thing in the universe if these things are the results? The offer to you, to all of us, is this. Be saved from meeting God in that terrible way in Mount Sinai. Because without Jesus, that is what lies ahead. Instead, you can come to God this glorious, all-satisfying way by accepting Jesus' death on the cross for your forgiveness. It is that simple. Come to God through Jesus, and all of this is yours. Relationship with God like that is truly priceless. Nothing could be better. Maybe you came across this story uh, in the news back in March. There was a a scrap dealer based in the US, a scrap metal dealer, who uh, went to a junk market and spotted a a slightly weird-looking ornament, uh, but it was made of gold and it had had some precious stones in it. And he bought it and he said about trying to sell it to other dealers who'd be able to melt it down for the gold and for the, the, the precious stones. Uh, and uh, he would have sold it for anything that got him just a, a few dollars profit on what he'd paid for it in the junkyard. But he, he couldn't get any decent offers. Uh, and people kept telling him that he'd overestimated the value of the, the thing. So this slightly weird egg-shaped ornament 
sat on his kitchen shelf for years, just gathering dust, and he didn't know what to do with it. Until one evening, he, he absentmindedly got onto Google and thought, oh, I'll just look this stupid thing up. Uh, and he typed in egg and uh, a name that was inscribed inside it. And on his computer popped up an article written by a jewellery expert who happens to be down the road here in Mayfair. Um, and it had an old fuzzy black and white photo of the egg that was in his kitchen with the title, Is this £20 million egg on your mantelpiece? It described a one-of-a-kind egg made by the House of Fabergé for the Russian royal family in 1887, lost for the last 90 years, presumed destroyed. Do you think that after discovering the value of the Fabergé egg sitting in his kitchen, uh, apparently he lived above a Dunkin' Donuts shop, the the image is brilliant, Um, do you think that dealer would ever again have considered training it in for scrap to get it melted down? Do you think he would ever have thought about swapping it for something of lesser value again? I I reckon he must have had cold sweats, imagining all those times that he nearly just let it slip through his fingers. How he nearly let something so priceless go away for, for nothing. Now, that egg wasn't even really priceless. It's worth a cool 20 million pounds. But our relationship with God really is priceless. The point of these verses is to show us that. To make us realize just how valuable knowing Jesus is so that we would never, ever consider swapping it for anything else. And so we come to the final part of the passage, verses 25 to 29, where the author hammers home the warning, don't turn away, be thankful for what you've received. So verse 25, see to it that you don't refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? See, there is one aspect of our relationship with God which is just the same as it was at Mount Sinai. If we refuse him, if we turn away from his voice and walk away, the consequences are still dreadful. His is the voice that terrified people back then as it shook the earth. And in the future, that same voice will shake all things in judgment, say these verses. Both earth and heaven will be shaken by God's voice and not everything will survive that shaking, that judgment. Verse 27 says, created things will not survive. They'll be removed in the judgment. So there are shakeable, removable things, and there are unshakable, permanent things. Verse 27 says, the words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken will remain. So what is it that cannot be shaken? What's going to remain through the judgment? Verse 28, we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. The kingdom, the city of God, Mount Zion, the New Jerusalem, what we've been talking about all along. These things, these priceless things attached to our relationship with God, these can never be shaken. Although everything else can and will be removed, God's kingdom will remain. 
when the Roman Empire was collapsing, where everything looked as if it was going to fall and, and collapse and be shaken to bits. Pagan hordes destroying towns and cities, a whole civilization just falling on its, its feet. Uh, Augustine, the Christian leader at the time, uh, wrote of two cities, the city of man, which can fall, and the city of God, which cannot fall. And he helped Christians of the time to put their trust not in created things or the Roman Empire, but in the unshakable kingdom of God. I came across a letter written by Christians who um, were hit by a devastating hurricane um, uh, years ago. And one paragraph in the letter says this, The hurricane has further reinforced in our minds the importance of holding loosely to material things. In one night, accumulated wealth for which people had laboured for many years was turned over to wind and rain, which were soon followed by the thieves. We can't cling to physical created things. Don't turn away from the kingdom and put your trust in things that can be shaken. How do we know that we're putting our trust in the unshakable kingdom of God that he's given us? Well, one very simple mark that I want to bring out as we finish. Verse 28. Since we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. We're going to talk about the rest of that verse, uh, worship and what all that means next week. For this week, let's just major on thankfulness. If we're truly thankful... It means that we genuinely recognize the value of what we've been given. If we're thankful, we're not likely to be careless with the privileges that we've received or or throw them away or trade them in for something pathetic. So let me ask you one last time. Do you realize the value of your relationship with God? Are you thankful for it? How priceless is it to you? If you find yourself in danger, tempted to turn away, for for whatever reason, remind yourselves from the Bible how priceless, how unique, how irreplaceable, how wonderful it is to know God through Jesus. Hebrews 12 is a great place to look. And let's take responsibility for each other here uh, in this too. The language throughout the chapter is, see to it that no one does this. Watch each other for signs of doing a terrible deal. And throwing away your relationship with God. Don't let yourself or anyone else forget the value of what you have in Christ. And give away a a Fabergé egg for scrap metal. Let me finish with this. uh, A quote from uh, Richard Baxter. Who was a a pastor, an English Puritan pastor from the 17th century. Uh, He imagined the day when he reached heaven at last. uh, At the end of his life. Uh, and uh, finally, in his, his experience, gained all of those blessings of the city of God. And then he imagined himself thinking back over his life and thinking of all the times and all the ways that he nearly gave up, nearly swerved away, nearly missed the grace of God or swapped it for something else. And here's uh, what he writes. Oh, my vile nature that resisted so much and so long such a blessing. Unworthy soul, is this the place you came to so unwillingly? Was duty wearisome? Was the world too good to lose? Could you not leave all, deny all, and suffer anything for this? 
Were you loath to die to come to this? Oh, false heart, you almost betrayed me and lost me this glory. Are you not now ashamed, my soul, that you ever questioned the love which brought you here? And misinterpreted those providences and resented those ways which have led to such an end. Now you are convinced that your blessed Redeemer was saving you as well when he crossed your desires as when he granted them. When he broke your heart as when he bound it up. No thanks to you, unworthy self, for this received crown. But to the Lord and the Lamb be glory forever. Let's pray. What an immense, priceless privilege we have to know you, our Father, through the Lord Jesus Christ. Please give us such a sense of the value of knowing you, the value of the kingdom that you've given us that cannot be shaken or destroyed, that we would never, ever consider exchanging it for anything else. And Father, there are things in our lives that loom large, things that are little pathetic sins, and yet our hearts long for them so much. Please, Father, help us to see how pathetic they are in contrast to you, knowing you, Receiving your kingdom. And so, Lord, help us to persevere. Not missing your grace. Not swerving off for anything. So that we might be with you forever. With all of your people. With those angels in joyful celebration for all eternity. In Jesus' name. Amen.